0: One of the (coughs) the joys of this week is to renew fellowship. These speakers, Ron Dunn, whom I had meetings some years ago at MacArthur Boulevard, Manuel Scott, who is one of the best of the black preachers of these days, and we've got a lot of them. Last spring, I spoke at uh, Hampton Institute in Virginia. Three days, uh, between four and 500 black preachers. They're a great school. Why, I tell you, I sometimes think I'd make a better black preacher than Ruth Hartford. I preached a hard-loss one of my cufflinks, never did find it That's the <coughs> And you know, they wound up that night, the last night, that great crowd singing farther along we'll know all about it. Now, I couldn't do a thing but sit there and pat my foot and bawl. I just bawled. And I heard some good preaching. They can do it when the power of God's on them and in their own way. It's been great to have this prospect and to be with Brother Harold here tonight. We date back considerably. I do more than he does. Well, I remember that time when he was brand new. I never saw a fellow going to heaven so fast in all my life. I didn't know. <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> I was in the whole East, Liberty, all those little towns around Greenville. I used to preach there a lot, and that's where Harold got saved in that neighborhood. You can go back there now, and the woods are full of Baptists and other preachers all over that part of the country got saved under his preaching. That's the best testimony I know of to a man's usefulness for the Lord. Glad I've had his friendship and a limited fellowship because we haven't seen each other much in the last few years, but it's not because he didn't want to. <clears throat> now, tonight, in the 20th chapter of 2 Chronicles, King Jehoshaphat of Judah was facing a national emergency. The armies of Ammon and Moab were marching against him. The situation looked hopeless. And in desperation, he called the nation to prayer, called on God to intervene. And he reached a climax in the 12th verse. Oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. You see, he admits his absolute inability to cope with the situation. We have no might. We don't know what to do. But man's extremity then, as ever, was God's opportunity. We need a Jehoshaphat in Washington. We have calls to prayer every once in a while, but most of them don't amount to much because unless with the praying, we do the other three things that God requires in that great passage. Humble ourselves seek God's face, and turn from our wicked ways, we've wasted the praying. For if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. America has reached desperation. The trouble is the situation's desperate, and we're not. We still think we can handle it. The experts are sure they have the answer. They don't even know what the question is. Politicians have their panaceas. I heard a story the other day, don't think it happened, but makes a good illustration anyhow. So fellow was in the hospital for a brain operation. They had him lying there, and over in another room they were working on his brain. I'm telling it the way I heard it. <laughs> and uh, he came to in the midst of all of it, got up and put on his clothes and left. I never found him for three years. When they did, he was an expert in Washington. <laughs> I don't have a bit of trouble believing that. <laughs> mm. Who do you think going to get up in Congress and say, we don't know what to do? They don't, but uh, who's going to say it? My Lord says that before he comes back, it'll be a time of perplexity, which means the state of having lost our way. And we've lost it, too proud to admit it. We think that social reforms and education and technology and American know-how will pull us through. I remember I was in meetings in Jacksonville when the last batch of astronauts went up and I watched them on TV over in one corner of the room. And I could look out the window into a park that I didn't dare walk in. Notice the contrast, astronauts and anarchists smart enough to go to the moon and not safe enough to walk in the park. That's where we are today. We've tried everything. Nothing works. When are we going to quit kidding ourselves? Anybody can see that all these new ideas are not cutting the mustard. Socialism, we have that creeping, of course, all the time on us, and it's not doing the job, of course. Churchill said there are only two places where socialism will work in heaven where they don't need it, and in hell where they already had it. (laughs) And if talk would do it, we'd have been out of the woods a long time ago. For the last few years, all you've heard has been sex, sex, sex. I think if we'd all shut up for a year or two, it might help the situation. All the experts are busy, the operation's brilliant. But the patient's dying. And that doesn't speak well for the surgeon. The best thing any president of the United States could say would be to get up on the radio uh, and say, fellow Americans, we don't know what to do. But, but, our eyes are on God. It wouldn't hurt him to say that if you don't know what to do. Everybody knows he doesn't know what to do anyhow. <laughs> And an honest confession would be good for the soul, even if it was hard on the reputation. (laughs) We are faced, beloved, with a combination of forces that can be met only by the intervention of Almighty God. But as long as we have a few tricks up our sleeve, God will leave us alone. God won't save a man who's trying to save himself. That's why some folks never get saved. He waits till you're at the end of your road. Sometimes a lifeguard has to knock out a drowning man because in his desperation he might hold on so tightly that both of them would go down. It's hard to kick against the pricks. God waits till you quit kicking. That's what Paul did. He quit kicking and then God could do something. Old Jehoshaphat had quit kicking. And you have this all through the Bible. I love to call it holy desperation. Listen to old Jeremiah in Lamentations 5. Remember, O Lord, what is come upon us, considering behold our reproach. Our inheritance is turned to strangers, our houses to aliens. We're orphans and fatherless, our mothers are as widows. We've drunken our water for money, our wood is sold unto us. Eighteen verses of that. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) Thou, O Lord, remainest forever. Thy throne from generation to generation. Now it's the same thing as saying we don't know what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. Or Micah. This reads like the morning paper. The good man is perished out of the earth. There is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh and the judge asketh for a reward. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. They're all in collusion. Trust not in a friend. He said, you can't even trust a friend. Put not confidence in a guy can't even trust your wife. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. And then the verse that Jesus quoted. For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. About time, don't you think? (laughs) I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. That's holy desperation. I'm tired of hearing all these experts diagnose the trouble. I'm tired of these blind leaders of the blind. They tell us today we just need to improve the environment. Friend, when you're up to your ears in crocodiles, it's no time to discuss how to drain the swamp. <laughs> we got crocodiles today. We haven't got time to drain the swamp. Now the church needs to pray the prayer of Jehoshaphat. She's never faced such a demonic combination of enemies as today, rich and increased with goods and doesn't need anything, knows not how wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked she is. This meanness today, this is not ordinary meanness. We've always had ordinary meanness, but what you're reading about now in the papers and seeing all over this world, this is not ordinary meanness. This is demonism double-distilled, concentrated, such as we've never had before. I like the way Phillips translates the last half of Ephesians 6.12. We are up against the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. That's the situation. And it's desperate, but the saints are not. I believe the church has only one effective weapon left. And we're too far gone for everything else. And that weapon is desperate prayer, but I don't hear much desperate praying. It would be amusing if it weren't so saddening, the way we celebrate New Year's Eve pretty generally in the churches over the country. You know what they do. Get together and first we have to eat. Uh, I've heard about poor as a church mouse. I don't know of anything getting fatter than a church mouse is these (laughs) days. Then we have a movie play some games, long about quarter to twelve, we pray, about 15 minutes, and almost run out of something to pray about in 15 minutes. Judgment ahead and hell around the corner. Can't last for 15 minutes. And why do we resort to everything else but God? Why aren't the churches of America filled today with penitent worshipers, Praying all night while yet there's time. The sinners revel all night, and a lot of the church members too, sitting up for the late, 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 late show, feasting on the filth of Sodom and Gomorrah brought into the living room. I was in a town some time ago where the church has a glass front. You can walk down the street and see what's going on. I said, no time for a glass front. Nothing going on. I ought to wall up the place till something happens on the inside. What do you think would happen if the lights burned late in this city some night in all the sanctuaries, and some old sinner went down the street and said, what's going on? Why, they're just praying, just praying. Why, yes. What about? Well, friend, haven't you seen the news? Don't you know what's going on? I believe he'd say, if it's that important, maybe I'd better give it a second thought. I've thought about that in my own town. We have about 150,000 people in Greensboro. I've sat there many a time, wondering what would happen if the Christians, regardless of denomination, would get so exercised about the fix we're in that automatically and spontaneously, they'd all head for the Coliseum and pack out the place. I don't mean one of these nice little organized prayer meetings. That a committee got up. That'd kill it to start with.
1: (laughs) You know what a committee is. A group of the unfit appointed by the unwilling to do
0: the unnecessary. (laughs) Somebody said the other day there was a great danger that computers are about to take the country. And somebody said, I know how to solve it. Organize them into committees and that'll slow them down. (laughs) They'll never do it. (laughs) I believe the world would take notice If we got so bothered that we'd pray the prayer of Jehoshaphat in dead earnest, Lord, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on thee. We're trying to meet an extraordinary situation with ordinary measures. And, uh, friend, uh, we're going down a road we've never been down before, and we're not coming back. And the emergency requires urgency. When somebody's desperately sick in your household, you change the schedule of the entire family to meet the emergency. You don't do as you usually do. When uh, disaster hits the country, flood, earthquake, hurricane, you know what happens. Business closes down. Inhabitants leave town. The military may take over. You know that the ambulance and the fire truck disregard the traffic signals and the speed limits because the emergency requires urgency. If I came down the street and your house was on fire and you didn't know it and you were up there asleep, I'd be justified in tearing the door down, if I could, to advise you of your danger. You wouldn't expect me to act as usual. You wouldn't expect me to say, pardon me, but there seems to be a conflagration in the neighborhood and I'd advise you to remove your carcass from this vicinity. (laughs) You'd expect me to say, get out of here. The house is on fire. Now, I know that sometimes when the house is on fire, folks do silly things, throw the clock out the window and carry feather pillows downstairs and all sorts of things. And some saints do that when they get excited their own way. I don't believe in being panicky, but I do believe in being concerned. And uh, we're not. I doubt whether I've ever been in any church where most of the members thought the meeting was worth going to. I'd like to get in a church somewhere where the majority of the membership thought the revival was worth attending. Most of them couldn't care less. Now, that doesn't embarrass me personally. I've reached the age where I'm not trying to project an image, build up a reputation, but we claim to have the answer to every need of humanity, and if we believe what we pretend to, no church auditorium at the the crowd. And if we don't believe it, we're the worst hypocrites on earth to preach and promote something that most of its adherents wouldn't miss if they lost it. If the average church member lost his religion, he wouldn't know the difference. And there's something wrong with it when we have to beg most of our crowd to come out to hear about it. Amen. That just doesn't add up. Now, I'm like old Joel. I'm ashamed of the world going by looking at a corporal's guard huddling in the lumberyard empty benches over the country, saying, revive us again." If I were a non-Christian and dropped in during such a performance, and saw a handful of the membership trying to enlist recruits to join the army of the Lord when most of the outfit had already gone AWOL, I'd say either Christianity is not what it's supposed to be or we've been sold a cheap brand and inoculated with a mile form and immunized against the real thing. I'd get up back there, I think, and say, Where's your God? That's what Joel was afraid of. He said, I'm tired of the pagans going by saying, Where's the God of Abraham and Isaac and all the rest of them? Where is it? <clears throat> don't see any evidences around here. I think I'd get up and say, what do you mean singing onward, Christian soldiers, when most of your arm is deserters? What do you mean singing, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine, for thee all the follies of sin I resign? They've got a truckload of sins, they've never resigned. Where's your God? any organization or business or secret order or political party or social club with no more loyalty to its founder that took no more joy in its program, used as much raw material and turned out as poor a finished product as the average church does, would be out of business. I agree with you well, I'm embarrassed when the pagans walk by the churches of the land and look in on the feeble ceremony, swapping a few members from one church to another, moving corpses from one mortician to another, preaching a dynamite gospel and living firecracker lives It bothers me. I've sat sometimes in these dull, dead services and said to myself, Lord, you bought more with your blood than this. This can't be it. Do you ever have that come over you? Lord, this dull business can't be what Jesus died for. Something's wrong somewhere. I can't accept it as normal. The dryness of our meetings generally over the land. I heard of a preacher who met one of his delinquent members and said, I haven't seen you at church lately. No, I said, you know what, it's been. The children have been sick, and it's rained, and it's rained, and it's rained. And the preacher said, well, it's always dry at church. Yeah, he said, that's another reason why I haven't been coming. <clears throat> and it is dry and it oughtn't be dry, and I can't accept that. Our Lord didn't accept the condition of the seven churches. Uh, Paul could have written to the Corinthians and said, Now, I know we've got some trouble here. One man living with the wrong woman and trouble in the courts and trouble at the Lord's table and so on, but we've got a lot of good people, and I like to accentuate the positive, so I'm not going to say anything. He started off with the trouble, Campbell Morgan says the first half of the book deals with the carnalities and the last half with the spiritual. They tell us that they just preach love. How do they care of it? Well, if love will take care of it, why didn't Paul start out with love instead of waiting until the 13th chapter before he ever got around to it? There was plenty wrong in there that a talk on love wouldn't handle. I'm ashamed, and we ought to be ashamed, and we ought to, as Joel says, let the ministers weep between the porch and the altar and cry, O oh God, I rather like one of the newer translations on this, leave not thy heritage to be a byword among pagans sneering, where is now your God? And then finally, what's true of the nation and true in the church is true of the individual. We need to get desperate. Have you noticed, beloved, that all the way through the Bible, the people who got the greatest blessing from God were all desperate folks. Jacob at Jabbok, Moses at the Red Sea, Gideon in the 300, David and Goliath, the four lepers in the gate of Samaria, Bartimaeus, the Syrophoenician woman, and in our Lord's parables, the woman and the judge and the man who had company at midnight, nothing to eat. Every one of them desperate. And they got what they came for. But there was one chap, who stood head and shoulders above all that crowd. But they got their blessing, and he didn't get his. And he was the rich young ruler. The reason was he could take it or leave it. And as long as you can take it or leave it, you will leave it. He wasn't desperate. If he'd been desperate, he'd have sold out. But something else was more important to him. But I love to read in Mark 5 about one poor soul who was desperate. Jesus is on the way to the house of Jairus, and it says here, A certain woman, a poor woman who had gone to the doctors and spent her money and was worse instead of better when she heard of Jesus, came in the press behind. Now, two little words stand out in this story. Touch his garment. For she said, If I may touch, but his clothes I shall behold. And then, farther down, Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the crowd and said, Who touched? My clothes. And poor old Simon Peter. One of the Gospels says, always talking out of turn. Somebody said he's the most American of all the disciples. <laughs> Bible says he said, not knowing what he said. Most of the things he said in the Gospels were a mistake. You check it. So he said, "Here, my Lord, you see this crowd pushing and shoving. Why would you ask such a question as that?" Yes, but my Lord knew what he was talking about. He said, I felt power go out of me. This is a different kind of a touch. Something had happened. I see people throng my Lord's Sunday morning after Sunday morning at church. I watch them go out, and I wonder how many ever touch him. How many touched him? Not how many throng. And that touch must be a touch of, Desperate prayer according to the four accordings of the Bible, according to his word, according to his will, according to your need, and according to your faith. That's like the frame of a picture, four sides to the thing. I've plenty of room in there, plenty of latitude in there. You'll get what you need. Some summers ago, my wife and I took a cottage at Montreat to spend a few weeks and one night Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, asked us up to their house for supper. And Dr. Bell and Mrs. Bell were there, that grand old veteran, surgeon, soldier of the cross. And he told us that night as we sat there together about the miraculous healing of his other daughter, Rosa Bell Montgomery. She had been out of the will of God and sort of bitter, never had married, and she had tuberculosis, one lung collapse. She didn't have long to stay, it looked like. She got right with God first. And then she said, maybe God would heal me. She called in just a few friends and had a little prayer. She said to the doctor, I'm not taking any more treatment. He called up Dr. Bell long distance, <laughs> doctor to doctor said, what in the world am I going to do? Dr. Bell said, I told him. If that's what she wants, follow her wishes. She got well. She married. Catherine Marshall went to see her and checked on that experience and has it in one of her books, Beyond Ourselves. I came down that mountain that night on cloud nine. Now, God doesn't do that every time. I prayed for my wife. And we had, uh, that woman was prayed for more than almost anybody I can think of, but God took her. I don't have any neat little answers for you tonight about all that. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Well, I know one thing. When you're desperate, <coughs> you get what you need and what God wants you to have. But what bothers me today, beloved, is I don't see many desperate folks. Now, there are a lot of them turn into drugs and liquor and everything else. I don't have any trouble getting a fellow to come down the aisle if he's desperate. And I think you have to be before m- much happens. Now I've just been looking over this crowd wondering tonight how many desperate folks we got here. Now we all need Jesus. I'm not talking about a general need. We could all sing I need the every hour. I'm not talking about that tonight. I wonder who's here with a desperate need of Jesus, either for yourself, or somebody else. Brings tears to your eyes and takes sleep from your eyelids. Bothers you. Folks don't know you've got that trouble, but you're desperate. Now, don't try to think it up. If you've got it, you know it. If you have to think it up, forget it. You don't have it. Have you got a desperate need of Jesus tonight? Above the ordinary, run-of-the-mill needs, we all have them. It's for yourself, body, mind, or spirit, or for somebody else. My soul is enough today to put everybody at the mourner's bench when it comes to that. But I just wonder how many folks we've got in the crowd tonight that can say honestly, Brother Havner, I believe I can qualify. I know I can. I have a desperate need of Jesus, either for myself or somebody else. So we bow our heads and pray. I'm going to make the shortest little proposition you ever heard of, because I'd contradict what I've just said if I made it long. (coughs) If you've got a desperate need of the Lord tonight for yourself or somebody else, desperate well, you just lift your hand, my soul. Amen. How about back here? God bless you. Put them down. Lord, uh, we saw the hands. You see the heart. We're so glad we don't have to pray and say, Lord, be with us tonight. Thank God you're here. You always are when we meet in your name. Help folks to be conscious that Jesus is here tonight, and if they'll come in simple faith for whatever need it is, he'll meet it, said he would. My God, shall will supply all your need. But Lord, we're just praying for desperate folks tonight. Enable them to come in simple faith, not throng you, but touch you. And then go back and say, well, Mark 11:24 is the truth. Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, Believe that you receive them, you shall have them. Now, I'm not trying to put on any kind of a performance, but if you're desperate, you really are, you will get up and come down here and kneel and have a little talk with the Lord about it. You won't have to beg it. You. you won't have to sing. Why do we have to sing to get you to come if you're desperate? I mean, if you've got a desperate name the Lord. Maybe it's for salvation. If it's desperate. Now, not just ordinary needs. We can fill up the place on that. Don't come, folks, unless you are desperate. Unless there is a deep, desperate need in your heart for Jesus, for yourself, for somebody else, come here and tell him about it. I want Brother Jack to close the meeting in a minute anyway. God leads him. The Lord's here. Tell him quietly, humbly, what you came for. devil will tell you nothing to it, but he's been a liar from the beginning. Just tell Jesus you've come to roll the load over on him and trust him, whatever it is. Believe that he's heard you, that he's touched you. And my book says that as many as touched him were made whole. Not everybody came to the church on Monday night. Just those that touched him. He's here. Brother Jack, God bless that woman that's talking to Brother Jack. You tell Jesus what you've come for.